welcome to The Framing Effect. I am your host, Jerry Zhang. This show seeks to view the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our sixth episode of The Framing Effect, we are joined by Mark Beckman, adjunct marketing professor and executive in residence at NYU Stern and guest lecturer at Columbia University. He is also the co-founder and CEO of DMA United a fashion advertising firm which has worked with the likes of the NBA, Taylor Swift, Bloomingdale's, Pepsi, and many other brands. Today we discuss his background, his experience representing high-profile individuals, and the secrets to fashion marketing. Hi Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jerry. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to meet you. Of course. So to begin, I'm very interested in your advertising firm, DMA United. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how you got started with that? Sure. Um, DMA United is an award-winning advertising agency. And what we've done is pretty unique. We built a polycultural platform where we sit at the center of superior style and design. And we extend into fashion, art, music, sports, and entertainment. And our clients benefit from this polycultural platform in several different ways. Essentially, what we do is we develop strategy for our clients that exists at this intersection of content and commerce. And we drive different pillars of strategy across content and commerce to create true brand equity. That could include original advertising campaigns, It could include metaverse and web three initiatives. It could include data and analytics. And then what we're really known for collaborations, partnerships, and strategic alliances. Mm. What made you want to start DMA? Um, Really the impetus behind developing DMA United, I think is from a inherent um, entrepreneurial bug that I have, coupled with the fact that I believe that um, there are new ways, or when I started DMA, I believed that there were new ways to leverage a, at this time, at that point in time, just a fashion designer's intellectual property. Um, I remember I was sitting in a business meeting in Los Angeles, and it was interesting. We were in a room filled with high Uh, high-profile celebrities, notable personalities, and nobody paid attention. We're in Los Angeles, and the people in that restaurant were familiar with people like Brad Pitt and so on. Um, And then all of a sudden, in walks Calvin Klein, the fashion designer, and the whole room turns around to see Calvin. And at that point, I realized fashion designers are the next celebrities. And this dates back, Jerry, before Project Runway, before the rise of the celebrity fashion designer. And that was really one of the um, kernels that created what DMA United has turned into today. Hmm. 
So it all sounds very interesting. And but where where did you and what did you do before DMA? Like what was your background leading into this? Sure. Um I have a background in law. I went to Hofstra Law School and um successfully passed the bar exam. I was admitted to um the New York State Bar, the uh New Jersey State Bar, and waved actually, waved into Washington, DC's bar because I scored high enough to get waved in, which is great. Um from there, I was entrepreneurial and I started a cosmetic company. And the cosmetic company grew pretty quickly. That's actually how I met my business partner, Sam Sohaley. The cosmetic company launched at Harrods in London, and it was pretty exciting. We actually sat in between the Prada collection and the Christian New York collection in the famous, at the time, the famous White Hall. And we had for our launch all of the windows on Brompton Road. And um, we did pretty good. We were pretty successful with that cosmetic initiative. I also later on created a contemporary collection that was sold at the masses. And eventually we sold the cosmetic company to Christian Dior. Um, the, the intellectual property went as part of that deal. And um, it was through that experience that I was inspired to come up with this business model, essentially talent representation services for luxury fashion designers. Sam and I eventually merged these businesses together. Sam had started an advertising agency downtown in New York City. I hired him to do my branding and advertising for the cosmetic brand, which was named Defile, which is French essentially for runway. And we brought together these two worlds of advertising, really fashion lifestyle advertising with new business development, talent representation. And that's what created this new, I think, very modern business model. And it's this ecosystem that we have set up across this polycultural platform, again, across fashion, art, music, sports, and entertainment, that allows for this multidiscipline practice to thrive. Hmm. Yeah, I noticed you guys do a lot of very experimental collaborations and partnerships, such as one that um, Del Toro X Pepsi. And I thought that collaboration was so like, I probably couldn't think that those two companies have much in common, but you guys based on like strategic partnership and I guess selectively picking the brand images between those two companies and kind of merging them together, you, you created a very successful collaboration. So could you walk us through like the process behind that? Yeah, Jerry, we have a um, proprietary process mm -hmm. uh, when we put collaborations and partnerships together, we use something called a DMA quotient score that analyzes essentially three different verticals for our partners. Um, we look at whether or not the partner has the ability, the partner that we're going to select on behalf of our client has the ability to design, like are they superior designers? The second component we look at is essentially what's their marketing value? Do they have media stickiness with, you know, earned media? Um, can we bring this person or this brand to life in a way uh, that will be well-received in both the trade and consumer facing? And then the third element that we look at, which is really important, is can we increase market share for our client while also 
reinvigorating our client's base. We wouldn't want to alienate our base. So it's that formula that we apply in a, you know, a pretty magical way, actually, for all of our, for all of our collaborations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Personally, I think the, it's like a trend of maybe fashion houses are like collaborating with um, companies that you just wouldn't expect to see in fashion. A couple of years ago, Off-White collabed with Ikea. That was absolutely massive. And I feel like that's the kind of a direction that people want to these things to go in. So I think you guys are doing something great here. I, I appreciate that. I think when the off-white, the off-white IKEA thing is worth noting, IKEA was really trying to reach at that point in time um off-white's youth base, right? Like like there's no doubt that that brand did an amazing job at attaching to youth culture in a very relevant and permanent way. While IKEA arguably was becoming a little rusty. One might say it's still a little rusty. So um, that collaboration was great. But, you know, it reminds me of a philosophy that we have where if our clients are willing to take a risk, we encourage them to often create these types of um, relationships that are not predicted, almost like strange bedfellows, right? And what happens is if you have two partners that come together in a way that nobody expects, it helps us cut through this massive amount of clutter that is in the marketplace right now, this massive amount of noise that the average person receives with regards to social media pushing you know, at them all the time. If you walk on the streets of any major city, you're in Houston, I'm in New York City, all day long, buses and bus stops and just nonstop marketing is in your face. So how do you cut through the noise? How do you cut through the clutter? So the first element for us in a collaboration is we try to find two partners that aren't necessarily expected, but when they come together, something magical comes mm. from the relationship. Right. I do think uh, by cutting through the clutter, sometimes you run into the problem that your collaboration is kind of just dumb, right? <laughs> like, uh, is what? Dumb? Kind of dumb, yeah. Like the Japanese denim brand, Evitu. Yes. And they, they're collabing with uh, Razor right now on the gaming brand. Yep. And all the comments under every one of their posts is like, this brand has fallen off. I mean, what is the VC doing? Right. So so it's a risk, right? So yeah. I agree with you. And and the, the thing that most brands or at least brand managers don't understand on the corporate side is that especially when you talk to we talk to youth culture, your generation in particular, you guys, you're smart. You're not going to be fooled. If it doesn't feel like it's meant to be and it doesn't create something that's valuable to the consumer, you guys are going to look right through it and rip right into it. So for us on the on the branding and advertising side of the equation, we're looking to create something that is unexpected, but also provides an additional value set for the consumer bases that they can't get otherwise. Hmm. And DMA also... There's another part of it. The Avisu Razor collaboration might not be executing in the right way. Like you might also get brand marketers that fail to tell the story the right way, that fail to position the partnership that right way, that don't create superior product design. And as a result of it, your generation is laughing at it. So you do need to be careful. It's not just about putting brands together. Right. And when you say um, kind of like designing a story around it, what does that mean exactly? Well, what 
what are we telling the consumers? Why are these brands coming together? How is this exciting them? So we think in terms of um, creating, you know, a partnership that on its own could stand on a uniform mission, on its own can share core values. And then we bring that storytelling to life across owned, earned, and paid media. Of course, to develop um, on a strategy. So we'll think, again, targeting your generation, we'll think in terms of like, where are you? How do we reach you? And how do we not intrude in your life too much, right? You're not gonna like it if you're, you know, in a gaming platform, you know, maybe you're in Roblox, maybe you're in Minecraft, maybe you're in Fortnite, wherever you might be. And all of a sudden we're popping in and trying to sell something new to you, even if it's a cool collaboration. So there are ways to un unpack a story where we create a covetable product, maybe it's limited edition, truly, um, and slowly give bits and pieces of that story, again, through traditional media, through PR efforts, through live events, um, gated access through the use of NFTs and beyond. Right. And in regards to those different types of media platforms, which like medium of media do you think is most, uh, you'll get the most like return on effort or investment? Yeah, so the, the the biggest ROI comes obviously through earned media, but that's only for monetary purposes. I care about the emotional connection. I believe that when a consumer and brand strike an emotional connection, that gives the biggest payout ever. So you can't even put money onto that value, right? But when that happens, that's the biggest, that's the biggest piece. So the way that brands interact you know, from an experiential perspective with their target audience is critical. And if um, the emotion doesn't come, then the word of mouth buzz doesn't come. The peer-to-peer -peer interaction doesn't get out there. And again, we might get beautiful headlines in places like Vogue or in places like Wired or, you know, in trade publications. Um, but if the emotional connection doesn't strike a chord with our target audience, it's all worth nothing right now i'm just curious it's not really relevant to marketing or anything but <laughs> what excites you in fashion like nowadays um right now i am uh less excited about fashion than i've been in a long time in my career um i always look at fashion as a way that an individual can express themselves it helps create um, a shell that is part of their personality. And um, right now I see a lot of parody in the marketplace. We've walked away from superior design on the engineering and construction side and moved deeper into um, hoodies and t-shirts and casual wear, mainly because of this weird time period that we're in, right? Everybody went home during the pandemic and it was okay to wear t-shirts and hoodies and top business meetings and beyond. Um, but with that, we lost a sense of self-expression. And what I'm hoping to start to see again is a resurgence of fashion designers that come from the better schools and understand how to embrace the traditions of the industry um, rooted in superior engineering and better design. Right. I have that same kind of sentiment about how like 
you know, every fashion house is making t-shirts and some of outrageous prices. Like, some of the like Junior Watanabe undercover t-shirt, the standard black t-shirt, it was like $980. I, I see it. Every, every luxury house has it now, and, yeah. and luxury retailers are doing the same. If you walk into, you know, much to my chagrin, if you walk into a Neiman Marcus, it's loaded with hoodies from you know some of the new brands for you know 12 15 1800 but um i think it's time to regroup and go back into some you know better quality goods fabrics engineering etc mm-hmm. but just- i have to tell you like just now there were some amazing collections on the parisian runways that i'm i am very excited about um, and there are still some very strong designers season after season that are really pushing um, what I'm talking about. So, And recently, um, Pharrell took over the design for Louis Vuitton. What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, Louis Vuitton is, um, you know, arguably the most successful luxury house today. And, um, you know, obviously with the passing of Virgil Abloh, the former creative director of and, and founder of Off-White, um, they looked to find a replacement to keep, I think, youth culture on a global scale excited. So the appointment of Pharrell to me, I think, is perfect. Um, I'm very excited about Pharrell being at Louis Vuitton. Um, if you think about it, he's an individual that has an amazing skill set. He's been talking to youth culture first through his music um, in a very exciting way, right? He's had multiple um, best-selling songs, top hits, Grammys um, as a producer and as a musician. Second, he's an incredible fashion designer as it relates to building a business from scratch in Billionaire Boys Club and selling all over the world. He also has been in a lot of other fashion-related businesses that people don't know about um, behind the scenes with ownership stakes and and beyond. So he already has his fingers on the pulse of fashion, of music, and um, visually as a creative director, he's incredible. So to me, look, he's not going to be the individual that's doing the traditional design work that I referenced earlier, but to set the voice for the brand as it relates to the the um, responsibilities of a creative director or, or an artistic director, I think Pharrell is the perfect selection right now. Mm. Now, a little bit of a different topic. You know, we hear a lot about fast fashion nowadays or in the past couple of years, very environmentally challenging, but um, it's still you know, not declining in popularity. What do you think about the trajectory of fast fashion and its place in the fashion world? Yeah, I think that um, it's tricky. Um, if you're talking about, are you asking me about the environment, the negative environmental impact of fast fashion? No, I think that's pretty clear by now. But like everyone kind of like needs fast fashion in a way because most people can't afford, you know, super designer stuff. Sure. But at the same time, we ha- we should probably move away from fast fashion because of the environmental aspects. So we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with that. Sure. Is there any plausible kind of strategy to mitigate the environmental aspects while keeping everyone satisfied with 
the fashion. Yeah. I first, I think that there are some um, fast fashion brands that have really done a good job at carving out their own lanes and creating a place for them within the spectrum of the fashion landscape, right? So if you go to a brand like Zara, or alternatively, if you shop at a brand like Uniqlo, those are two different tribes, right? You don't really see a major overlapping at those two different fast fashion retailers. And I think it's excellent that those companies were able to really find lanes that are ownable to them. Same thing with H&M, right? Fant they've done an absolute fantastic job at carving out their own brand positioning and speaking with the tribe that they've you know, essentially created from scratch. I think that's fantastic. Hmm. The um, fashion's impact on um, the environment is one of the worst business sectors um, out of all business sectors. It's, it's notably terrible. And um, the truth is that the as much as the industry and the trade says that they want to do something about it, in fact, it's if you look at a lot of the publicly traded mass retailers' plans that came out two, three, four years ago, they um, talk publicly about when they want to have a carbon neutral footprint or even a carbon negative footprint. The reality is that they're not going to hit those numbers in time. It's just not a realistic um, expectation. And I think it's um, a situation where capitalism and economies are prioritized over the planet. It's that simple. So until the, the actual brand leaders of these businesses, the owners and the leaders decide independently that they're not going to operate that way anymore, um, it's not going to change. That's just the bottom line. The reason I could say that is that several brands do it for more than just marketing purposes. It's their culture. It's the pillar they live on. They purposely create a smaller footprint as it relates to manufacturing and shipping and everything else. But at the end of the day, it's almost farcical to see brands that wave this flag of you know e being eco-friendly but then ship product all over the world and the shipping alone is hurting our climate um, you know, as well. So these things need to be sorted out by the business leaders. It's not really going to happen as a result of trade organizations or, or the government pressing down. At the end of the day, the business leaders really need to address these topics. Right. I'm going back to DMA United. You guys have worked with some pretty major clients just a few on the top of my head, like NBA, like VNBA, and then Russell Westbrook, Anthony Tavis. Also... Did you say Westbrick? No, of course not. <laughs> oh, never. He's actually doing pretty well right now in the Clippers. He's doing great. Yeah, I enjoy watching him play right now. They just love to hate Russell, but he's incredible, and he'll be in the Hall of Fame, guaranteed. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Also, you worked with like Future. Right? Yeah, yeah, Future was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious about what it's like to work with those people. And obviously, uh, if you could tell the story about how like Anthony Davis lost your kid in like the middle of New York, that'd be pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I feel very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to work with um, several best in class athletes and entities like Russell Westbrook, like Anthony Davis. Um, Kawhi Leonard was a client for a while too. And of course the NBA. 
Um, we've done some groundbreaking work for these people and these entities. For the NBA, we built up their entire fashion vertical. We partnered them with the Kupels and Zadig and Voltaire, with Jeremy Scott, Maison Kitsune. Um, we partnered them with Marcelo Berlan, who I love, um, and really changed the face of that organization for years to come. I think, I hope you would agree as, as um, youth culture goes, that that's pretty exciting. Those are pretty cool partnerships. No longer do you have just a plain hoodie. You can actually go to some of your favorite brands like Maison Kitsune and wear something, you know, that's a little bit more advanced and better quality. So we were excited about that. Um, Russell was um, incredible for years and years and years. We built and implemented his strategy, essentially implementing all of Russell Westbrook's off-court work. Um, we organized deals for him with Barney's, with on the fragrance front, with Byredo. Um, we put together, I think on the Barney's platform, more than 20, 25 deals, including, by the way, we brought Jordan Brand into um, the Barney's platform as well. That was really very exciting for us as an agency during that time period. We also partnered Russell with, at the time, one of the most innovative retailers on the planet in Paris with Colette, where we launched his special collection of eyewear. We also put that deal together for him, the eyewear collection that he owned. Um, and we did that in Paris with Colette. And we also partnered Russell back with the NBA to create a special collection that came to life with both the eyewear and Jordan brand. Um, we went as far as putting him into mass brands with True Religion. I don't know if you saw that. It was an awesome program. Yeah. And even his publishing deal with Rizzoli. So I'm name dropping a lot, but it's years and years of work. We even put Russell into his Subway deal, which was really exciting. Um, but you asked me specifically about Anthony Davis, right? Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. So with Anthony, um, I love Anthony. I was introduced to Anthony actually through Russell's um, agent, his former sports agent, a guy named Thad Fouché, who I love dearly. Thad is an amazing, amazing human being. And um, at the time, Thad represented both Anthony and Russell. Unfortunately, he doesn't represent either of them right now. But what we did for Anthony was pretty cool. First, I put um, Anthony into a deal at Saks Fifth Avenue with his own collection, and it sold out. Um, it was a multi-year deal, and it actually sat. We mentioned Off-White earlier. Anthony's collection sat next to Off-White oh. for many years. Can you imagine that? Incredible, yeah. right? Really cool. So one day, we activated down here at Saks Fifth Avenue in Tribeca, and Anthony was doing a personal appearance. And I, at the time, I had my son jude beckman with us and anthony said i had to go run and, and handle something with sax and anthony said don't worry i'll take care of jude this is really a funny story i'm happy that we're talking about it actually um so i went and i i spoke to the sax people whatever we had to organize we took care of it was fantastic and then i come back to anthony who you can't miss right he's like the tallest human being on the planet and i'm like where's my son and he's like I don't know. And literally, my son, Jude Beckman, is missing. So, um, you know, I often say to all my friends in a cheeky way, Anthony Davis is the worst babysitter in history. But um, actually, it turns out that it was my son's fault. He went, he's a real gamer. So he went, I think he was like on my phone and he like tucked his way into the corner near the ties and sat down and was like gaming and we had to like find him. So yeah. that was like an amazing story. But 
you know, Anthony Davis is an amazing, amazing person to work with too. Um, we did some great activations. He's such a great person, um, takes his time, is patient with everyone, was so grateful. Um, I remember we did one event at uh, Chateau Marmont in um, LA, the famous hotel that John Belushi died at, one of my favorite hotels actually. And um, at that event, he took his time, he spoke to everyone, he was so enthusiastic. We created some really cool merch for everybody that attended. And um, it's a shame when when Anthony went to LeBron James's agency, um, I received a call, much to my chagrin, and LeBron's um, business partner explained to me that they would no longer require our services um, in the fashion industry, that they had it. And needless to say, uh, that's been a long time since he went over to LeBron and we haven't seen any of his merchandise anywhere, which yeah. is a shame because Anthony really had a passion um, was literally involved in all of the design of the product and wore the product. He was very proud. And as I told you, the product was sold next to Off-White and it would sell out. So it's a shame for Anthony's sake. He's, again, just a fantastic guy that that product's not out there anymore. Right. Yeah, I mean, Westbrook and Davis are both kind of like front runners of NBA fashion. See him a lot on the Bleacher Report post, stuff like that. <laughs> But also, you know, like Kyle Kuzma, you see like every night James Harden wearing like pretty eccentric outfits. Yeah, We did a deal with Harden also. I know you're in Houston and I know that um, you might like him or you might not anymore because he left you guys. But um, back in the day, I actually structured a deal with Harden, GQ and Bloomingdale's. And we put together a special collection. I think he raised some money for a charity at the time. I think it might have been a kids charity. And um, I had some. I got to spend some time with James Harden, and he also was a total mensch. Um, very nice guy, and really committed. Very professional. Activated in a great way. Hmm. Just a side note. Like, keep mentioning the word "activated." Does that just mean starting the collaboration, or like, what? Did, yeah. That so so when i use the word activation i'm talking about um how do we turn on the noise right so it's not as simple in these programs as if you build it everybody will know and they will come it's mm -hmm. not like that at all so what we do is devise these marketing activation plans um again that many times will include an elite athlete a celebrity a high profile individual at the core and we activate that individual to start our storytelling. Um, it could be one time, actually, we launched an incredible program with Anthony Davis and the national retailer finish line. Um, it was Anthony Davis and um, I forget who it was exactly. It was a hip hop artist that was amazing. Um, I don't know if you're looking on your computer, but you could look it up. And those two guys activated a campaign in traditional advertising. We put together a really cool television commercial, but then also across um, social media. And um, from there, we allowed for the public to take the content and participate. So the use of the word activation is critical for us because that's you know a, a key part. It's one thing to get the deal done. It's another thing to build the product, but then we got to get eyeballs. And you know, to your point, we got to make sure people love it. Right. Yeah, so sounds like you had pretty good experience with all of these, you know, very high profile individuals. What's your favorite deal that you've ever been involved in? If you can say, I don't know if you can. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, my favorite deal that I was ever involved in was with Andre Leon Talley of Vogue. Andre um, was a dear, he became a dear friend of mine. Um, I loved Andre Leon Talley and he was the number two at Vogue to Anna Wintour. Um, incredible person. Andre's mind was unlike any other person in fashion. He had a photographic memory when it came to historic, historically relevant facts across all cultural pillars, music, the runway, art history, literature, and beyond. And he rubbed shoulders with the best, people like Andy Warhol. So with Andre, I put together two deals for him that I'll never forget. The first one, um, which really, really was fun, was with Numero, Russia. And at the time, he was really disenchanted with what Anna, the way he was being treated at Vogue. His old friend, Anna Wintour, wasn't really treating him in his mind the way that he should have been treated. So we actually went and hand-delivered a letter of resignation. My office, uh, I wrote the letter, and then we hand-delivered it to Vogue. And then we put together this multi-million dollar deal with um, Numero Russia. And at the time, our agency was hired to do all the creative direction for anything Andre did, all the covers, all the feature stories. It was incredible. We were working with Naomi Campbell and other very cool people that Andre brought along, Karl Lagerfeld, Tom Ford, and beyond. And um, that was really, really wild because Andre did not like working with the Russians. He didn't trust them. Um, he was very upset. He would call me from Moscow, refusing to leave his hotel room until I was able to secure him um, proper security, um, just, just crazy things. We had a meeting in our office, a kickoff meeting. All the Russians flew into New York City down in Soho, and they brought a luggage filled with cash, with caviar, and with vodka. And this did not sit well with Andre. He started screaming, Mark, get them out of here, get the money away. Um, it was incredible. But anyone that's into fashion, if you go back in time and look at the work that Andre did during that time period, um, you'll see it was remarkable. He was really incredible. The other part that I mentioned is Zappos. We brought Andre, this was, he took a risk with this. He wasn't sure he wanted to go into Zappos because of its mass positioning. So we built Zappos Luxury and we created a digital magazine that he really was the artistic director for. Again, my agency implemented all the creative and um, he struggled for you know a few years with regards to connecting with that mass consumer and telling stories with you know incredible leaders in fashion, Dion von Furstenberg and Mark Jacobs and you know his friends for years and years and years. But it was always such a fun thing with Andre. We would take trips all over the planet from you know for business from New York to Paris to Milan, and then he loved rubbing shoulders with the students too. He was very active at SCAD in Savannah, Georgia. Um, we would go to Rhode Island for RISD. So it was an amazing, amazing adventure always with my friend, Andre Leon Talley. Sounds incredible. He was incredible. Yeah. Well, it's all the fashion, industry doesn't, the fashion industry does not have an Andre Leon Talley today. Oh, <laughs> hopefully someone comes, you know, comes close. <laughs> And that's all the topics that I have prepared for today. Now, awesome. oh, one last thing. For yes. someone younger who's maybe into, really into fashion and 
the behind the scenes, the marketing, the infrastructure, and the business behind it, what advice would you give them to maybe pursue the path that you've taken or some something close to that? Sure. It's a great question, Jerry. And the answer is get your foot in the door. Roll up your sleeves, get into a business, take an internship, care about it, work your ass off, meet the people that run the business and get everything you can, learn everything you can from that experience. Really commit yourself to an internship, really build as much as you can as it relates to education um, and knowledge so that you could lead in the future. So get your foot in the door and just start. Put your ego aside and start. That's terrific advice. And all right. that's all I have for today. Thank you so much for sitting down and having this conversation. I love hearing your stories. It's a pleasure. I hope that I, um, I lived up to it for you today. <laughs> definitely did. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Framing Effect. Thank you again to Mark Beckman for joining us in this conversation today. Please follow The Framing Effect on Instagram at The Framing Effect PC to see clips of the interview in the form of Instagram Reels. Stay curious.